Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. All right, welcome to The Interpreter Show this evening. I'm Neil Rapley, and I'm joined here in studio by Jasmine Rapley, Stephen Smoot, and I believe we have Hales on the line. Are you there with us, Hales? I share your belief. (laughs) Excellent. Wonderful. Um, Well, for this evening on The Interpreter Show, uh, we've got quite a few topics we're going to try and cover today. I don't know that we decided what we wanted to cover first. Should we just start with the Come Follow Me lesson? Sure. Might as well, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and start with the Come Follow Me segment of our show tonight then, which is going to be covering uh, the New Testament uh, um, chapters Matthew 8, Mark 2 through 4, and Luke 7. Uh, and these are a lot of a lot of stories about miracles, about healing, um, and also a parable in there, I believe. A parable or two. Yeah, Jesus you know. was known for them. He, he, yeah, six. Jesus was known for those kinds of things. Uh, but in this first chapter, we've Matthew chapter eight. We've got the healing of a leper and the healing of the centurion servant. And I know in the New Testament it can be a little, I don't know, disorienting because with the Come Follow Me lessons we're flipping between different Gospels and there's a lot of uh, repetition of certain stories between the Gospels. And also you just have a very healthy dose of like healings, teachings, parables, miracles every single time. And so it can be really easy to kind of get them all conflated and uh, I mean, we have a healing of a leper here, but we've got a healing of a leper in Mark and, and Luke and different places. And we're going to cover some of the same stories that overlap, but there's a lot of differences between these stories. So we'll do our best to try to keep our wires straight, but it can definitely be a challenge. Before we jump into the specific stories of the healing, though, I think it might be worth setting up a little bit of the, let's say, the cultural context of Jesus's healings, right? Because readers of the New Testament will notice that a lot of the times when Jesus heals somebody, he simultaneously uh, exercises them of a demon, right? And the the healing stories and the exorcism stories sort of go hand in hand, uh, typically in the gospel accounts. So I think it might be worth – and we see this here in in Matthew 8 and elsewhere, right? So uh, just a quick word on that if that's all right. Um, So – Uh, In the Greco-Roman world, uh, as in most of the world of antiquity, before uh, our understanding of germ theory and pathogen theory and origins of diseases, it was very widely assumed and believed that diseases, both uh, physical ailments and diseases, as well as what we today would call mental illness, right, mental uh, disabilities and so forth, uh, it was widely believed and assumed that these were the result of supernatural forces acting on the person. And it makes sense from that sort of worldview, right, because – Here's an otherwise normal, healthy person who suddenly is overtaken with a horrible disease or some sort of a a mental disability or affliction, and we have no way to account for it other than the thinking goes, there must be a supernatural entity at force. And this isn't just a thing that the New Testament authors uh, get at. This is widely uh, believed and discussed in the Greco-Roman world. 
um, and even predating the Greco-Roman world, right? It's, it's a belief in ancient Egypt, for example, in ancient Mesopotamia. So this is a, a sort of a conceptual linkage that we don't countenance all that much today, uh, especially, again, after, uh, you know, the articulation of things like germ theory for the origins of disease and, and things like that. You, you really don't get much of a sense these days that um, diseases are, are an affliction of evil spirits, right, or, or demonic forces. Uh, I mean, you still, you still absolutely do see that in parts of the world. Uh, but in the West, especially in the secular West, we've kind of decoupled these ideas. And so when, when readers encounter Jesus healing people in the New Testament, it goes hand in glove with this idea of Jesus as an exorcist. And I recommend the work of Craig Keener on this, who's done some really good work contextualizing Jesus' work as an exorcist and Jesus' work as a healer to sort of understand it in, in its Greco-Roman context. The other point I'll just make on, on this um, is to say, uh, and I know we've discussed Ben Spackman's work here in the past. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with Ben Spackman and his work. But Ben Spackman talks about this concept of scriptural accommodation or concordism, the idea that God allows uh, prophets, uh, even even the Savior, to act in the specific cultures in which they are living in and breathing in, and that God isn't always going to necessarily try to transcend those cultural assumptions or beliefs that people have, but he's going to work within it. And so this is a good example, I think, where we can see this idea of scriptural concordism coming to the fore, right? God allowed... His prophets and apostles in the early New Testament church, he allowed the gospel authors, uh, he allowed them to have this conceptual cultural understanding that healing and exorcism go together, which may be kind of weird to us, but that was an operative thing for them. So uh, just something maybe to hopefully frame a little bit, because we're going to see where they interplay together, where Jesus is healing and then he's giving an exorcism, or he literally does them both at the same time, and the healing comes when the demon is properly exercised. So I think that's a good context to keep in mind. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So jumping into Matthew 8, um, it starts off this uh, section in, well, it's the beginning of the chapter. So when he was come down for the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou, tell no man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So there's our first healing story of this section. And we've got not necessarily like an explicit exorcism in this instance, but Jesus is touching him, cleansing him, and then telling him to essentially go purify himself uh, to be approved by the priest. This is drawing on Mosaic laws uh, that indicates, you know, if you've got an, a ritual impurity of any sort, you've got to be ritually pure and then kind of get clearance from the priest to assure, yeah, you're good to fraternize in society again. And so that's Leviticus what 14 is the reference that he's talking about here, right? So, yep, he's explicitly drawing on the Mosaic laws, Jasmine's saying. And uh, it might be worth maybe saying something about uh, what we do or don't know about the nature of leprosy, um, which I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know very much at all. But what I what's your experience with leprosy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, From from what I do understand, uh, we typically so in your King James Bible, Leviticus talks about leprosy a lot. But from what I understand, scholars today don't actually think. The disease that's being referred to in Leviticus is the same one that's being talked about in the New Testament. 
Um, or what we call leprosy today. Or what we call leprosy <laughs> Typically today. Typically Hansen's disease, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, by the Greco-Roman period, basically the Jews were encountering – there were new diseases and, and things that have been introduced into their world, into their environment. And they're interpreting it in light of what they have in the Law of Moses, in Leviticus and other places uh, as – in order to make sense of it, to provide rituals around how to properly quarantine and cleanse yourself and things like that. Um, but they're different. They're actually different diseases, What what's being ex- actually talked about in Leviticus versus what's in the New Testament. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I don't actually know what the leprosy of the New Testament period is or what the current um, consensus or thinking is on that. Um, yeah, it's it's a complicated effectively a load subject. shift on leprosy. What's that, uh, Hales? So it's effectively a loan shift on leprosy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of, of sorts. Uh, yeah, the word part of it is I think that you know they don't have they don't have germ theory and they don't have uh, a lot of understanding about the source of diseases and stuff. And so diseases are largely defined by their symptoms. And so if you're having similar symptoms from one disease to the other. They're just going to lump that in as as one thing mm-hmm. when really there might be several different uh, viruses or bacteria or microbes or whatever that are – there are different sources that we would separate out into different illnesses. But mm-hmm. they're all kind of lumped into one concept uh, in the ancient world because they don't have any other – you know, they, they have similar symptoms or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I've read that, uh, like, at a minimum, we're talking about, like, bad cases of, like, eczema or something, like a bad skin rash. It could be something as mild as that. Or it could be what we consider Hansen's disease. Um, there's a whole spectrum of, of diseases here. So it all just it all just gets glossed with uh, leprosy, lepros in Greek, right? Um, so important to, yeah, keep that in mind mm-hmm. as well. Well, the next section is uh, verses 5 through 10 is another healing story. This time it's the healing of the centurion's servant. And it says, when Jesus went to Capernaum, there came a centurion unto him, saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say unto this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in all of Israel. And then he goes on to say to the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And the servant was healed in the selfsame hour. So with that story, you've got a kind of variation on this healing trope. But in this case, it's not a Jew, but rather a Gentile, a centurion and someone who was, you know, considered kind of an enemy of the Jewish people in the sense that he was employed by the Roman government and he was a soldier. But he seemed to believe that Jesus had healing powers and that he could heal his servant. And so he asked Jesus to do a kind of by proxy distance healing, if you will. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Hales. I was just going to say there's another important detail here, which is that it, in fact, is a Gentile. And um, in verse 11, he says, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's, even from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this theme of those who are already part of the covenant people do not have a place that is uh, permanently and unconditionally assured just by virtue of their membership in that people. And those who are of other families are not permanently and everlastingly excluded. Um, and in fact, there's, the gospel is going to be going to the Gentiles, and ultimately there will be no meaningful divisions between them. But they'll be sitting down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even in the kingdom of heaven. So it, this is, it's interesting because it's still early in his ministry, relatively speaking, to the house of Israel. But already he's making the point that this is not just for you. This is going to go to the whole world. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was actually just reading today from an evangelical scholar uh, named Craig Blomberg, and he was talking about how absolutely inflammatory this would have been in context uh, for Jesus to say not not only for Jesus to heal this this centurion servant and to say hey when when the time comes people from all over are going to share the banquet with Abraham Isaac and Jacob while the children of Abraham will be excluded or some of them will be excluded at least right but to say that this centurion had more faith than all those in Israel uh, Craig Blomberg compared it to if Jesus came down today and a Muslim or, or something like that came and asked for a healing blessing and and showed great faith. And so Jesus said, this guy's got more faith than all of Western evangelical Christianity combined. Like that would have been – you can imagine how outraged – it would fuel the televangelists and all of the – you know, this is a really inflammatory thing to be saying in this context because um, because of the re- relationship between Jewish leaders and Rome and his status as a centurion and all of that kind of stuff. That status is really interesting too because um, strictly speaking on the social pecking order, the centurion is higher than Jesus on the social rung, right, on the social ladder. Uh, I mean he basically would have – it seems some sort of authority to put the guy to death if he wanted to, right? This, I mean, he's he's clearly uh, the dominant force here in the social relationship, and yet he shows this great humility. It's it's really, uh, yeah, as, as you say, you know, sort of a shocking inversion of what we would expect uh, in its first century Greco-Roman context. Uh, but it's all the more marvelous. It this reminds me of in Matthew, um, sorry, not Matthew four, in Luke four, when Jesus preaches at the synagogue in Nazareth, he. He uses the example of Elijah going to the Phoenician uh, widow at uh, Zarephath in Sidon, right, and Elisha healing uh, Naaman the Syrian, two Gentiles as well, as uh, showing like, hey, look, you know, uh, God's blessings aren't reserved exclusively for the Jews or for you people in Nazareth, right? And that gets him almost killed when he says this. Right. uh, Mm -hmm. And these are his friends he grew up with in Nazareth, for heaven's sake. (laughs) These are guys that knew him. So one thing that uh, Matthew especially portrays Jesus as, you know, people talk about Matthew's portrayal of Jesus as like the very Jewish Jesus, which is very true, right? Um, But also in some ways uh, sort of a, I don't want to say – well, yeah, sort of an inversion or, or sort of uh, disrupting those expectations of what this Jewishness is supposed to look like. Yeah, and and like Hales pointed out, it's this expectation that even though this is a very Jewish portrayal of Jesus, 
his his impact is going to go beyond the boundaries of Israel, right? And this is clearly this is like the early part of Jesus' ministry, and it's already being indicated here. Um, but uh, given the amount of content we have for this lesson, we probably should Let's keep going. Keep going. The number of stories here are uh, there's a lot, right? That's just the whole nature of these gospels. It's just back to back miracle boom, stories, boom, parables, boom. and they mm-hmm. repeat between the gospels. The next one is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And it's just a two-verse story. When Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and ministered unto them. So it's a really short little excerpt there of a healing. And again, we're not seeing like a direct connection to exorcism in this instance, but, you know, they go hand in hand. Uh, But it's just... It's a nice story because this is talking about a woman's miracle story and also her role and then getting up and beginning to minister unto them, whatever that might have looked like. And so that's just kind of fun. Um, but one that might be worth covering is, um, well, we've got, we do have an exorcism story right after that where he casts out devils. Uh, well, it says, it kind of gives a summary of his ministry in verse 16 they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bear our sicknesses that being a reference to isaiah 53 and so this is kind of you know we give several examples of these healing miracle stories and then kind of a summary statement that you know he did this a lot um but one that might be worth covering is the tempest. So in the starting in verse 23, it talks about Jesus going with the disciples across the Sea of Galilee and that while they were there, there rose a great tempest. This is in verse 24, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And the disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, even that the winds and the sea obey him? It's one of the more well-known stories. It's a very exciting one. And it's one that seems kind of crazy because you've got this storm and this rocking bow and the water crashing in, and Jesus is somehow inexplicably sleeping through all of it. And the disciples kind of get, you know, worried and concerned and also a little indignant. Like, how on earth could you be sleeping through this? Uh, But obviously Jesus shows his control over the elements. And then it's a teaching moment for him to demonstrate uh, the, the value of faith. And this story also gets repeated in Mark in the section that we have today, Mark chapter 4. And the version that they have in Mark is very similar. Um, I think it actually might be a few verses longer, which is unusual for Mark. Um, Well, actually, it's about the same. But it talks about how in Mark they went to the ship and there arose a great storm. And Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? 
And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So you can sense a lot of similarities between those stories, but also some subtle differences too in the verbiage and how it's told. And both of them end up being really dramatic and demonstrate Jesus' power over the elements. And it kind of harkens back to some Old Testament imagery, too, of Jesus' power over creation. This is, this is the statement. The, the, the gospel writers are, are making a statement here that Jesus is the God of creation, right? He is the one who controls the chaos waters that, that divided and uh, from whence creation emerged, and, uh, which is the imagery in Genesis 1, right? It's the imagery in several of the Psalms with, uh, with the tempest and the sea and the chaos monster or the Leviathan, as, as it's like usually rendered, or the dragon. Um, they're, the message here – and I, when I say this is the message of the gospel writers, I'm not trying to imply that this isn't something that really happened. But their purpose in including this story and telling it about Jesus here is to convey this message that – this is this is the God of creation here. He's the, the, the one who controls those those chaos waters. Uh, what was that, Hales? I was just saying this is the literary backdrop and the context in which they're saying these things. Yeah, exactly. And in which they're understanding what's happening. Exactly. Yeah, and as as they witness it happen, that's they're you know they're like, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? They're they're starting. They're confused now, but you know. By the time the gospel writers are telling the story, that that's the message they want you to understand, is that this is the God of creation here. And I think the thing to understand, and perhaps simplified by, as, as was pointed out earlier, the fact that Jesus heals both the physical ailments of people and their spiritual ailments. And I think then the message for this is that Christ can not only help control the chaos of the natural world as it happens uh, as it happens to us but also bring peace to the chaos within our own hearts in our own lives and in our own spirits yeah absolutely is unique to him and one interesting feature of or one interesting dynamic of the story at least in mark i think is this concept of recognition of who Jesus is and the confusion of the disciples. Um, In Mark and in Matthew, the King James Version has Jesus commanding the ocean by saying, you know, peace, be still. But if you go to the Greek, it's a little bit more forceful where it's like, be quiet or be silent. Silence, be uh, be still. Silent, silent, (laughs) silent, you fiends. (laughs) And so it's a little bit more emphatic, a little bit more forceful, for Jesus to silence the ocean. And at least in the Gospel of Mark, there seems to be a pattern where Jesus will have demons or those who are possessed try to proclaim Jesus' identity, and Jesus silences them and charges them that they shouldn't make him known, and then will, you know, exorcise them, cast the demons out. And, and heal the person. And some scholars have talked about this as like this messianic secret of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. silencing those who seem to have a sense of his true identity. 
And so you almost get an echo of that here in the the ocean or the sea tempest story because you've got the waves crashing and trying to thwart and disrupt Jesus and what he's trying to do. And Jesus's response is silence, you know, to to calm the storm, to silence the storm. And the sea recognizes and obeys because the sea knows who Jesus is. Again, it's like Jesus is the Lord of creation. He is, you know, the Jehovah. He is the creator. And yet afterwards, you still have the disciples kind of confused and in bewilderment saying, well, what manner of man is this? And it's a little bit of like a rhetorical question. Like we as the reader, we as the audience know who this is. Obviously, it's Jesus. But to have the disciples verbalize that kind of gives you a sense of their confusion, their persistent misunderstanding of Jesus's true mission. I mean, throughout the Gospels, you'll have Peter and the other disciples misunderstanding what Jesus is really there to do. While Jesus understands his mission to save the world and that it will require the cross and it's going to require suffering and subjecting himself to the Father's will, the disciples don't always recognize that and they're continuously trying to see Jesus as someone who's going to be successful and gather a following. And they have certain expectations of what this Messiah and Savior is going to be that are continuously disrupted. And Jesus is continually trying to tell them and clue them in, and yet they continually misunderstand. And I think, you know, that's relatable because obviously we all do that. We all um, have expectations and assumptions about what God should or should not do in our lives and how he should act and how he should lead my life and where my life should go. And yet we get an example from this story that even the seas and the winds obey Jesus Christ and understand who he is, understand what he's about, and understand that ultimately subjecting ourselves to God's will is the best path. And yet sometimes it's easy for us as disciples to say, Oh wow. What manner of man is this? So I really enjoy the, this, this story and it inspires the hymn master. The tempest is raging an excellent hymn to sing at all times. I'm just uh, glad that there's scriptural justification for napping. (laughs) (laughs) So Napping true. in tumultuous situations, even. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, well, after the story in Matthew 8 slash Mark 4 of the Sea Tempest, we've got the exorcism of the swine. And that one's a pretty fun one. Uh. And involves demons. Yeah, what? demons. Demons Yay. and animals. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Uh, this is starting in verse 28. Jesus talks about how he's going into the country of the Gergesenes. And they met him too possessed with devils coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no man might pass by that way. So they're putting up a very fearful image. And they said, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? And uh, the narrator indicates that, you know, a ways off, there's a herd of pigs feeding. And so the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And so Jesus said, Okay. And so then they were come out, and he cast them into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine were in violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And then the people who witnessed that um, went into the city and kind of told everyone. It was really exciting. And then everyone came out to meet Jesus and they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. So it's a little enigmatic. There's some weird things going on here. Um, 
What are some key takeaways from this story? And what's kind of the background that we would cast a demon into some swine? So, so there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, per, perhaps it's worth point. Uh, I don't want to say dispelling or debunking, but maybe maybe putting a little caution on a very popular reading that Latter Day Saints at least like to put on this. And uh, I've heard this many times in Sunday school. Members of my family, friends, I hear. Uh, in fact, I think it comes from Jesus the Christ, if I'm not mistaken, Elder Talmage. And the reading is this: that these demons that fell from the premortal existence and so they don't get a body. They are so desperate for anybody, anybody will do, that they'll even take pig bodies if they can't have human bodies. And so uh, this tells us something about, uh, you know, the nature of disembodied spirits and how desperate they are to have bodies that they'll even take pig bodies over uh, human bodies, right? Uh, now, you know, there may be something to that. I'm not, we're not here to get into the metaphysics of spiritual embodiment or whatever, but I think that for our gospel writers, there's a bigger point going on here to the story, and it is to show Jesus's uh, undisputed mastery over the forces of evil, right? He, Jesus is the exorcist par excellence in the gospels uh, and in the minds of the early Christian authors. Um, so uh, it's not just Jesus that's doing exorcisms at this time, by the way. Uh, Jewish exorcism is a well-attested phenomenon happening in the Greco-Roman world. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, some of the mechanisms of exorcism that Jesus uses is attested in other Jewish sources. So uh, we have references uh, in the Mishnah, for example, that talks about early rabbis commanding spirits to go, depart. Like that's the key phrase you use, right? Jesus does this. Mm-hmm. So um, – and in fact, the book of Acts, Acts uh, – I want to say like five or six discusses Jewish exorcists, it calls them, that – they thought they could use Jesus' name like a magic spell password to cast out demons. And the demons say, who the hell are you people? We know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is, but you guys are pretenders, right? So, so the point here being um, the gospel authors, besides they want to link in your mind Jesus' healing and Jesus' casting out demons, they want everybody to know that of all the exorcists in town, Jesus is the best one of them, right? And he has absolute total mastery. So Jasmine points out the uh, Matthew lays it on thick with describing these two demoniacs, right? They're exceedingly fierce, and their people you know, can't re- re- restrain them, and they avoid them or whatever. And Jesus just calmly comes up and just by the word of his command is able to cast out the evil spirits, right? So that's, mm-hmm. I think, one thing that we can talk about. The, the second thing that strikes me is the fact that the reaction of the people when this happens. So, so the people of Gergesenes, which, uh, side note, some ancient manuscripts have a different name of a different city. Uh, Garadine is another one of the cities. Yeah. So we're not sure. Uh, it, they're both up in the Galilee, right? But there's debate about which one it is because the manuscripts are a little bit different. But whatever. Um, the people of the city seem to have been getting their livelihood based on the swine, right? This is a Gentile city, by the way, clearly. For one thing, they, uh, they're keeping pigs, right. so they're clearly not Jewish. Um, and so they, they, uh, they seem to be – it seems to be like a local farm, agrarian farming economy based around raising livestock, including pigs. And as Jasmine mentioned, the reaction – the city comes out and instead of saying, thanks so much, Jesus, it's so great that you healed these people, they say, get out of here because you're ruining our livelihood, right? Like so <laughs> it gives us a sort of a, 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 a snapshot view into the different reactions Jesus gets from people. Some people are grateful, they're humble, they're penitent, some become disciples, 
and others are kind of ungrateful jerks about it, and they care more about their worldly livelihood than they do about following Jesus or acknowledging his, his mastery as, or, the, as the Messiah. Or the well-being of, of their of fellow the people, man for heaven's who, sake, yeah. who have been yeah. healed. Who have been suffering. It's not, thanks for he- healing our friends, Jesus. It's, what are you doing, you jerk? You just ruined our economy. So I think that says something interesting um, about uh, sort of how people react to Jesus' miracles. Yeah, and so yeah. it sounds like in this chapter you've got just multiple ways that you're showing Jesus's mastery over everything. You've got Jesus being the Lord over illnesses and being able to have power over sickness. And then you've got Jesus showing his mastery over the elements and being the Lord of creation. And then now here you have a very clear demonstration of Jesus's power over the powers of evil and over Mm -hmm. demons. And so you've got this really holistic picture of Jesus just being this well-rounded, powerful over everything. And it's supposed to impress you with, you know, just how Jesus is fulfilling that mission as being the son of God, that he is the Lord over creation, over illness, over evil, over everything. I had a couple of thoughts that I wanted to add to that. Um, with him casting the demons into the swine, there, there's a thematic thing going here because he's casting unclean spirits into unclean animals, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're unclean for ma- use of man under the law of Moses. Yeah, yeah, that's a great so that's, point. That's definitely part of what's going on here literarily and in terms of what's happening. Um, it's also interesting to note how well things go when Satan's running things and they go right flat off a cliff. <laughs> now, I suppose there's also a potential um, alternate reading in which <laughs> the devils conspired to get Jesus into trouble by running off the cliff. And I'm not sure which of those <laughs> is correct or not. But in any case... As far as a personal, personal observation... Yeah. Personal observation is that when Satan's running things, or when people are running things in Satan's way, this is frequently a good metaphor for what happens. Has The Chosen depicted this already? I I don't know. I don't know. I've only seen season one of The Chosen. I'd want to see if The Chosen depicts Jesus casting out the Garadine swine, right? What that what that looks like. That'd be kind of a that, fun scene to put to, to put to film. It would be, yeah, absolutely. Have I, some like CGI pigs, yeah. you know, jumping off a cliff or something. <laughs> you know, like, no animals were harmed. We've been watching, but I haven't scene. seen this scene yet. If there is such a scene, yeah. Uh, well, that pretty much covers Matthew 8, uh, and by covering Matthew 8, we also covered a lot of the material that's in the other <laughs> in, sections, in Mark, right? but yeah. do we want to maybe uh, pick through the leftovers, if you will? Uh, yeah, so Matthew, or Mark chapter 2, we've got more healing stories, more forgiveness stories that we may have already covered in Matthew 8. Uh, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He, you've got the calling of Matthew in this chapter and some discussion about the nature of the Sabbath day and J- Jesus's mastery over it. And then that theme of Sabbath day observance continues into chapter three, where he, again, heals on the Sabbath and there's some conflict conflict there. Uh, and then you've got the calling of the 12, or rather the ordaining of the 12 in a mountaintop and... Mm-hmm. Uh, then you've got discussion about Jesus's ability to exorcise demons and his authority to do so. 
And then in chapter four, which we've already covered a little bit, he gives some parables, the parable of the sower, the candle under a bushel, the seed growing secretly, and the parable of the mustard seed, and then he stills the tempest. So that's kind of the content covered in the Mark sections. And then in chapter seven, we've already covered the healing of the centurion servant. And then there's another miracle story of Jesus raising from death the son of the widow of Nain. And then there's a discussion about the prophetic calling of John the Baptist when some of John's followers come to Jesus and start asking him questions. And then finally, we've got a story of a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and he forgives her sins. And this story is repeated later in the Gospel of John when Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's where John includes this story. So again, whenever we're doing the Gospels and trying to do this harmony approach, we're jumping back and forth where some chapters will have repeats or overlapping stories and others you've you know it's hard to remember which ones are where um but are there any particular stories we'd like to touch on in mark chapter two three or four there's a lot going on here um i think it might be worth saying something in, in mark chapter two um i have to make a confession though as somebody who is right now working on filing his taxes, it is a great trial of faith to me <laughs> that Jesus was friendly with tax collectors <laughs> and that he called one of them to be his disciples. Uh, no, just kidding. But really, I, I think it says something about Jesus calling um, a local tax collector to be one of his disciples. Um, so I, I have a note here in the in the uh, Jewish Annotated New Testament that I'm looking at that has some interesting commentary. And it points out the fact that uh, the tax collectors portrayed, um, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the in the synoptics, um, we're not sure exactly who they're working for, like what level of tax collectors are they. They don't seem to be temple tax collectors, right, because we're not in Jerusalem. They're probably not Roman tax collectors uh, just because there's nothing really to indicate that these are Gentiles that we're talking about, right? Uh, Levi has a Jewish name. Matthew right, has a Jewish name, Levi. Um, so uh, instead, the, this commentary I have suggests that guys like Matthew or Levi, um, they are, uh, quote, low-level entrepreneurs, end quote, meaning they're, um, I guess what would we say today, like uh, like public uh, private contractors for the Romans sort of, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. So, 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 so these are local guys who are going to be in cahoots with the Romans – they will collect taxes for the Romans, and it seems like they keep a cut of the of the profit. You, you could call them mercenaries, sure, if, if you, you want, want to, to. <laughs> of some kind. They, so, yeah, call them mercenaries or, or public or private contractors. But the punchline here being, rightly or not, uh, both Christian and Jewish sources from this time are not too pleased with these people, and they get portrayed very negatively as sellouts, as collaborators, right? Um, so the fact that Jesus calls one of these guys to be his disciple, Levi or Matthew, um, again, going to this idea that, that Jesus is rocking the boat here with kind of the established social order or structure that we would expect. Um, mm-hmm. He's casting uh, – for, forgive the pun because it's a biblical one, but he's casting a wide net here. <laughs> and he's lost who his disciples are going to be. It's not just – you know, these aren't people all from the same – social or ethnic stock. They seem to be coming from a variety of backgrounds. And to Hales's point earlier, I think this says something significant about who the gospel is intended for. Obviously, Jesus says, we got to do this in order where it goes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles or whatever. But like Gentiles are still part of the equation here. 
Um, and collaborators with Gentiles are part of the equation here. So it's it's quite remarkable in, in, in many ways, it feels like, that Jesus would sort of stick his neck out like this and call somebody like Levi Matthew to uh, to be one of his disciples. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, you, you could make a point here about, like— um, he he's deliberately going out of his way to to pick people who have been ostracized right from from mainstream jewish society at least uh and it it yeah it's very much a message about the inclusiveness of his project of what he's doing yeah we don't get a lot of like uh temple elites that he's calling to yeah disciples. exactly now we mm-hmm. do have people like nicodemus or joseph arimathea who are in the sanhedrin who are uh social elites right um but up in the galilee at least where he is where where all this is happening yeah he's pulling from uh if if i may be excused to say the dregs of society yeah and uh uh honestly i kind of see a parallel with uh who were called to be modern apostles in the early dispensation and the early restoration right uh, uh historians have noted that early converts to quote-unquote Mormonism, so-called, tended to be lower middle class, uh, typically from an agrarian background. Mm-hmm. In England, they're coming from predominantly a working class background. We kind of see a similar situation here with Jesus. So I, I find that interesting that, that that tends to be kind of the first earliest recipients to the gospel. Uh, yeah, I mean, he makes, he makes that point himself, doesn't he, right? Um, in verse 17, when, he said, when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. And Joseph Smith had some uh, interesting things to say about that verse. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, what he said about saying? it was, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons that are so righteous they will be damned anyhow. You cannot save them. In essence, what he's saying is, Unless you have a person that recognizes their own poverty of spirit, if you will, unless they recognize their needs for Jesus' teachings and redemption, they cannot be saved. The conventional sinners that Jesus encountered, the publicans, sinners, uh, people of ill repute, and so forth, recognized this need. While many of the what you might call the low-wattage luminaries um, who judged Jesus for associating with them, did not, and consequently placed themselves beyond his ability to help them, unfortunately. And I think there's a lot to, there's a lot to be said for simply recognizing the seriousness of your own need, even when life is mostly outwardly okay uh yeah absolutely um and i think there's also a a lesson to be learned here stephen mentions like nicodemus and joseph of arimathea who are certainly followers of jesus or disciples uh though we don't hear much about them uh but they they appear to be supporters but they are not who jesus calls right they're not the people he chooses to be his apostles to be his leaders um and you know that that maybe reflects something about what we should learn today about like you know the lord doesn't always call those that 
might seem to have the best credentials on paper or you know the the elite uh, or the scholars or or whatever that's not necessarily who god calls to lead his church in uh, both in ancient and modern times and um you know it can be hard sometimes if you feel like you know more than the prophets or even your local bishop or stake president or whatever right uh, but I think there's a there's a lesson there that, you know, if you're going to be a Joseph of Arimathea or a Nicodemus, you have to be willing to trust Jesus as he chooses these fishermen and publicans and tax collectors to be the leaders of his of his church. And you're you might be scratching your head, but there's there's a certain amount of trust and faith that goes into that and humility as well. And as he lives as a homeless person, no less. I mean, how often yeah, he... we find it exceedingly difficult to to credit people that are in such difficult life circumstances. Anyway, yeah. Speaking of disciples, um, in Mark chapter three, there's a section that I think is really cool, and it's the calling of the twelve. Well, not the calling of the twelve. It's really the ordaining of the twelve. Um, it's in chapter 3, right at um, verse 13, and it's coming right after Jesus exorcises, or there's a, there's a scripture describing his healings and exorcisms, that unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. Um, and Jesus charged them that they shouldn't make him known. Then it transitions very abruptly into Jesus bringing 12 into the mountain with him. He goeth up to a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And then it kind of goes through a roll call of all the 12 and Simon. He named, surnamed Peter and James, the son of Jebedee and John, this brother of James and et cetera, et cetera. And then right after that, um, there's inserted this story about the scribes uh, accusing Jesus of being of Beelzebub because by the prince of the devils, casteth he out devils. And so Jesus goes on to explain about the nature of exorcisms and how, you know, Satan can't cast out Satan, though only the power of God can do so. And so I just think it's interesting structurally that you've got Jesus casting out devils and the powers of evil um, first, then you've got Jesus taking time to bring his apostles into a mountain setting to ordain them and set them apart to have power to do the same. And then right after you've again got this discussion about exorcism and the powers of evil and the devil and casting out demons. And so sandwiched in between this talk of Satan and evil, you've got this little refuge where Jesus takes his disciples up into the mountaintop and you know, me, I'm thinking this reminds me of kind of temple-like settings where you go to a refuge and God bestows, endows you with power and knowledge and authority to uh, have power over Satan. But also it reminds me of like in the Exodus where Moses is in the mountain with God in Sinai and he brings up Aaron and his sons with him and they kind of have that very sacred theophany moment. And so I see this as Jesus having a little bit of a refuge from the storm, but also theophany to instruct and bequeath his disciples with 
the power and authority they need to be able to do what Jesus Christ does. And ultimately, that's what Jesus Christ um, calls all of us to do. That as we become his disciples, as we become his followers, he can bestow us with power and authority to uh, to have power over Satan and to cast evil from our lives in various ways. And so I really like that story. Um, but with that... Uh, in chapter four, we've got, again, more parables, and we've already covered the stilling of the tempest. So is there anything else that people would like to cover in Mark two, three, and or four? I have one thing in Mark two I thought might be worth covering. Sure. So in Mark two, five through eight, uh, Jesus heals the sick of the palsy. Um, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, Thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. He said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. So what he does here is a fairly effective teaching device. First, Jesus exercises a divine prerogative because of their faith and uses the situation, uh, the results to teach. If God will heal a man after Jesus purports to forgive his sins, then Jesus must not have offended God in doing so, implying that Jesus did have the authority to forgive the sins to begin with and implying by the logic of the scribes that he was, in fact, God. Um by his contradicting the assumption that he could not forgive sin because none but God could do so. So he, he sets up a contradiction between their own claims and reality if he is not, in fact, at least sent by God and by their logic, even um, God himself. So it, it's fascinating to see the Savior teach because he's very good at using situations to kind of create a crisis of unbelief, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. yeah, no, those are really good points. And then um, in Luke chapter 7, we've also got, again, this healing of the centurion servant, which we've already covered, and then you've got the raising from death, the son of the widow of Nain. And I think in Luke here, you've got a lot of hearkening back to what Stephen talked about, about like these allusions to the Elijah and Elisha stories where you've got these miraculous healings. I mean, you've got um, in the Old Testament, the healing of the widow of Zarephath or the widow's son. And then here you've got the widow of Nain's son being brought back to life. And then you've also got the repeat of the centurion servant being healed, who's a Gentile, just like Naaman the Syrian was sealed, healed of his leprosy. And so you're hearkening back to Jesus not just being, you know, God and the Lord of all creation, but also being this Old Testament prophet figure who has God's authority and is his messenger that I think is really important. And then that message is driven home when you've got disciples of John, who they also see as God's prophet and his messenger, coming to Jesus asking, well, do we follow you? Do we follow John? What's going on here? And so there's a little dialogue between Jesus and John's disciples. Um, and Jesus tells them to go your way and to tell John what you've seen here. Um 
and blessed is he whoever shall not be offended in me. And so you've got this idea of Jesus kind of superseding this prophet like John. Even though John is a prophet, Jesus Christ is, um, is greater. And so then it concludes with the story of a woman anointing Jesus' feet. And like I said, this story shows up in John at a later point in Jesus' ministry, right before his kind of Holy Week, Passion Week, if you will. Um, but in this story, um, this is happening in the home of a Pharisee. In John's story, I believe it's happening in a Simon, the home of one Simon. Yeah, in uh, Bethany, right? Yeah, the, uh, Simon, With the, the Lazarus yeah. and Mary and Martha. But here, uh, Luke records the story is happening in a generic Pharisee's home. And this woman, which was a sinner, comes in and brings an alabaster box of ointment and begins to weep and to wash Jesus's feet with her tears and wipes her feet with her hair and kisses feet and anoints him with ointment, which is just a very bizarre thing to see, especially if this, this Pharisee re- reacts pretty strongly. Like, don't you know who this woman is? She's a sinner. Why do you let her do this? And I don't know. It just strikes me as odd that you've got this Pharisee and this random woman comes into your house during dinner time and starts <laughs> enacting these these culturally strange sort of things. Um, But Jesus takes it as a teaching opportunity and talks about how, because the woman sinned more um, when God forgives you more, you love more. And because this woman sinned a lot, Jesus says, I forgive you go your way. Therefore, like she's the one who's showing greater devotion here rather than the Pharisee who didn't offer the customary courtesy of, uh, providing, you know, water to wash your feet or ointment for his head. Instead, this woman offers what the Pharisee didn't, and therefore she's like showing the greater love. So it's it's a beautiful story, and again, one where women come out as examples of belief and devotion over what would be expected of belief and devotion. In this case, a Pharisee who is pious and religious and of certain social standing. But um, that's all I have for these sections. How about you guys? Uh, that's That pretty well covers everything I can think of. All right. That's a quick thought of Mark 4 if there's time. Sure. Okay. So in the parable of the sower, you have a sower goes out. He sows seed. Some falls uh, by the wayside, stony ground. Some of it gets scorched, some of it gets thorned, some of it falls on good ground. And when it falls on good ground, it brings forth some 30, some 60, and some 100. Um, At least one of the early church fathers saw this as evidence of a diversity of rewards um, that occur even among those who bring forth fruit, uh, which is somewhat akin to our uh, notion of the degrees of glory. Um, there's, it, it's asserted that there's a great difference between those who bring forth 30, 60, and 100-fold. Anyway, there's that. All Love right. It. Perfect. Uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back. This is The Interpreter Show.